Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host Jeff, as always. Today we have on filmmaker and theater director Gavin Quinn. Gavin talks about his short film Mespel in the Dark and his work with experimental theater company PanPan. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, and tonight we are chatting with Gavin Quinn. Gavin is co-founder of the contemporary theater company PanPan, based in Ireland. PanPan has created 43 new theater and performance pieces, toured worldwide, receiving multiple national and international awards, and Gavin is also a film director. His new short film, Mespel in the Dark, explores the lives of eight actors and artists who live in the same complex of flats in Dublin. The film is a character study tracking the routines and navigations of daily life, sharing moments of dreams, fears, and chance events that shape their fates. Gavin, welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer. Uh, welcome back for having So, Gavin, um, we are always curious how our guests got interested in the in the field that they're in. In your case, you know, writing and directing and storytelling. How did that start for you? Well, um, I remember uh, answering this question when I did the photography book many years ago, and, and the question I gave then, I guess, I should stick to it. Um, this is about twenty years ago. Was that I, I started and uh, choreographing my sisters when I was five. And making them dance uh, to certain tunes I like. So I think it started off with, I must have been that annoying child (laughs) directing his family members into a performance. So I guess it must have started there. Whatever that urge is, whatever that um, sense of storytelling that that exists in people, it it definitely started young. And then I I did actually like sort of enjoy acting in school plays. I enjoyed being a a precocious sort of youth um, kind of pseudo-intellectual and uh, pretending to write stories when I was 12, 13. And, but I also enjoyed uh, taking photographs. So I guess it was, I, I was lucky to be surrounded in a, grew up in a quite a boring suburb of Dublin. And uh, there wasn't much to do except for to hang around with a group of people and kind of um, pretend that we were clever, discuss art and uh, read books we didn't understand. Well, I'm curious. Um, you mentioned dance and music and photography um, and acting. Um, that's a lot for a kid to be interested in. Was your family creative? Did you have uh, parents or siblings that were interested in photography or those kinds of things? Uh, no, I, I was the only person uh, in my family who was interested in, in art per se or interested in performance. I think it was just, um, I think that the, the inspiration came from my friends and, and, and I think perhaps also from my um older friends uh sorry my friends older friends their brothers the brothers of, of my friends in fact so it was almost as if like we we were might have been 12 13 but we kind of emulated the 16 year olds and the 17 year olds so it actually came from the notion even when i was discussing it recently about like this concept of like i remember at the time it was about you know at least four or five of my friends and um, their parents were separated which meant while the single parent went to work we were able to kind of sneak into their houses during the day and go <laughs> to school, play records and discuss. So I think it came from that sort of um, kind of like um, free house environment where we just hang around the house all day. And I guess um, we we would sort of, uh, maybe we would pretend to be older than we were, but I think we were influenced by, um, by the older group, if that makes any sense. Your short film looks fascinating. We want to talk more about that in detail later, but... First, I'm curious about Pan Pan. What led you to, create, to creating your own theater company and maybe the origin of the name? Yeah, sure. So the name, the name Pan Pan, is simply the onomatopoeia, the sound of the words. Um, 
we, we started the company, myself and designer, Adrian Cosgrove. We started it straight after college because at the time, no one else would employ us, but also Dublin was a very different place in the kind of early 90s, late 80s. Um, there would have been like 20, 25% unemployment. Uh, it's kind of before what they call the, the Celtic Tiger years. And at the time, the only theatre pretty much in Dublin was kind of a literary theatre, kind of from the neck down. So, you know, all those literary plays that Ireland's kind of famous for. So we wanted to have a more experimental group that was edited in performance, mixed media, which we call the time experimental work where, you know, we would just work with anybody, work in any medium to make performance. So we started our own company called Pan Pan. Subsequently, we found out that Pan Pan is like used in, as a sailing term. It means if you're not going to drown, you don't send an SOS. It's like, maybe you're going to drown. So you send Pan Pan. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, you know, circling back to, uh, you your youth when you said you were you know listening to records and hanging out with your friends i'm curious in terms of your your interest in storytelling and, and music and photography did you have um inspirations from from other artists i'm curious what artists you followed and and who may have influenced you when you were young yeah so when we were young like there was a kind of tendency as i said i mean this is this it's because it, it sounds like very precocious and and um pretentious in a way but i think pretentious Pretentious is a very important part of growing up, I guess. Um, <laughs> so we we sort of enjoyed like trying to read Beckett, trying to read all the absurd writers, trying to read Kafka, you know, sort of almost like almost like a bad Woody Allen movie, you know. It was almost like you know we didn't quite say that Kafka was Kafka esque, but <laughs> we, we were into kind of reading the kind of modern novelists, the the the, the modern writers, and and the kind of the the more kind of performance poets, and uh, we were into kind of um, we were, we were into kind of new wave and punk music, you know, our heroes growing up were sort of people in punk bands who kind of died of heroin. It was so like that they were kind of heroes. So it was that era, I think in the, in the late seventies, early eighties was a kind of anti-consumerist kind of angry, um, vibe on the streets. And it, it was all about, um, kind of being difficult and, uh, kind of, uh, you know, searching for kind of more absurd. Um, sense of the world and something very different than now perhaps is it was all about being an individual it's like almost like not dressing like other people finding your own way of doing things and uh, essentially you had a lot of free time because you just had nothing else to do so um i guess those are the kind of pre-internet days that were kind of lucky I, I i i feel lucky anyway as somebody having grown up in the analog world but also had to experience the and having the experience of the digital world so we're like we're sort of in between, if you're of a certain age, you're in between both worlds, aren't you? Well, that's what you're doing, you know, when you're young, you're searching. And and um, that's all part of being, you know, being a kid. Totally, yeah. So, so you yeah, know, with that group of friends, um, we, yeah, we, we certainly, like, that was our thing. We used to kind of, like, you know, um, discuss and experience. And, uh, you know, uh, in, in Dublin, you could go and see, you know, I think we were, like, 13, 14. We'd go in and see a production of, like, Waiting for God in a small theater not fully understand it, but enjoy the language and enjoy the kind of existentialist angst as we would see it and, you know, enjoy the kind of, um, the minimalism and joy and the, 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 the sort of, the, the, and then we would also then, you know, you know, we kind of do crazy things like watch film, watch black and white films and, uh, go to the cinema quite a lot because it was very inexpensive in those days. And you would kind of bunk off still in the afternoon and you would go to, um, you go see a lot of films, so that was part of it as well. You know the sort of so, so yeah, so it's just a normal the normal searching, you know, and uh, that was really the 
that was the fun part. Uh, some of my friends now are quite sort of normal jobs, if you want to use that term, or work in the professional era. They look back on that time as being, you know, a really um, uh, the best fun they ever had, which is kind of a bit sad, but also maybe that's just the way people uh, view nostalgia. So circling back to your short film, Mespo in the Dark, where did this idea come from? Well, I have a lot of... Mesmer and Dark is actually based around a real place called the Mesmer Apartments. And, and they were they were built in uh, 1950s Ireland. And they're one of the first, like, uh, purpose-built uh, apartment blocks built in the city. Up until then, you know, there weren't really apartment blocks in Dublin. There was single housing, terraced housing, Georgian housing, and then there were suburban housing. So Mesmer and Dark, uh, Mesmer flats were built, actually, um, in collaboration with the government, it was one of the first um, kind of private public uh, buildings that was built. And a lot of the a lot of the apartments are studio apartments, like for one person. And over the years, what's happened is that like a lot of artists have gravitated to live there. Like you know, actors live there by themselves, artists live there by themselves, writers. And so it, it, it turned out that quite a few of my friends were living there in in the last number of years, and just started collecting stories about living in this unique apartment block, you know, like re really, really kind of mundane stories, like things like, um, you know, somebody calling you up and going, um, I'm going to the, um, asking you to go uh, shopping with them in Tesco and then on the way back telling the story or somebody sort of like breaking the washing machine uh, in, in the communal laundress or even still um, finding a dead body in the, in the laundrette, which actually transpired to be a true story. So I kept sort of oh, collecting... Wow. He's collecting these sort of like ordinary, simple stories. I always thought that the action of the place with all these different people walking through it, I thought that it would make a really good film or a good sort of TV, small TV series. So I went about trying to conceptualize that. And then we thought, well, maybe it'll be fun if we, if we made a series of short films. Mess from the Dark is, is the one, episode five, the one that was shown in Portland. And so in the end, the idea was, why do we make six short films? that are slightly interconnected, not that much. And then also then we would make a live show later on and almost like show the difference between film and performance. But obviously, unlike most situations in, the, in that kind of investigation, we would do the, the live performance, sorry, we would do the films first and the live performances later. So Mesmeladar, which we call it a five, was one of six uh, films. We, mostly they're shown on their own at film festivals. Uh, the one that that you saw is is in, is like starring Aidan Gillen, who's a very well known um, film act, film and film television and theater actor. And then the other ones, then they all have different names. Like for example, uh, the very first episode is called Dinner for One, and it's about this guy who's an actor who does voiceovers to make a living. And it's about him going around trying to find ingredients to make. Uh, every year, he celebrates his birthday by himself, and he has this kind of dinner for one. So they all have different sort of uh, themes, but what interconnects them is that sometimes you see the characters going through different episodes. And I guess the the major artistic influence there, although we're not even, not, I would be embarrassing to say we're even close or, or as good or anything close to Kislowski, but Kislowski's Dacalogs, where he filmed a lot of those short films, are actually filmed in the same apartment blocks. So, what drew the uh, the artists and the actors to this particular apartment complex? Was it uh, was there like an art district there? How did they end up in this kind of same space? I'm curious. Well, in that area back in the 70s and 80s, it, it was a place where you could rent quite um, quite cheaply. Um, 
when I lived in Dublin in the, in the kind of late 80s, you could rent a floor of a Georgian apartment for about 20 pounds a week, which was probably like, uh, you know, to give you a context, just probably like about half or less than half of what you'd get as a weekly social welfare payment as, as a 21-year-old. So Dublin was very affordable in those days. So people gravitate towards that because it was quite near the city. It's in this beautiful part of Dublin called the Georgian Wild. So it has all that. So, so traditionally, a lot of artists had their studios there. Um, and a lot of writers live there and a lot of kind of actors and kind of media ties. Now the situation is it's actually the, it's actually the most expensive area in Dublin to stay in. So it's highly unlikely that people who are there now, unless they bought their apartments, it's completely it's completely gentrified. So now, you know, people, those those apartments to rent are now like a couple of thousand euros easily a month to rent out and they all get done up quite fancy. So there's only a few left that are actually like really what they were in the 1950s, 60s. In one episode, uh, which we call Coup de Théâtre number six, um, one of the original apartments there really hasn't been changed since kind of the late 50s, early 60s. So it's sort of also about this last oasis in Dublin, this kind of bohemia, which will no longer exist, which happens, I think, in every capital city. You know, this sort of says that these areas tend to find it very hard to keep, um, you know, the artists living there. Artists tend to go further out. It's just a classic thing. I mean, obviously, like New York, or you know, you see people go further east or go further north, and so it's, very, it's the same in Dublin. It's like for the next generation, and also even for students, they really can't afford just to move to Dublin at nineteen. Now they've got to stay at home till they're twenty-eight. But this is a, a worldwide problem, isn't it? In terms of like how cities have evolved and how the planning just doesn't suit the next wave of people coming into it, unless they're very wealthy. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It, it sounds like. Uh... Man, I want to hang out at that place. I'm, I'm, I'm sad that it's changed because it's, it sounds really cool. Um, at least the way it used to be, you know, with the artists and the actors. That's, that's interesting. You know, talking about your short film, you mentioned that it was part of a series, uh, which is interesting to me. Were you, were you conceiving that as a series? I guess this is a two-part question. One, were you conceiving that as a series, uh, just because you wanted to do a series of different stories, or were you thinking about turning, you know, combining them into a feature? What was the what was the idea behind doing a series is, is the first part of the question. And then the second part was, did I think you said Mespel in the Dark. Uh, did it stand alone as the short film that you sh- that you uh, have been showing? Or did you change it in some way because it was already connected to the series, if that makes sense? So um, so the first part, yeah, no, we, all, we always wanted to do a series. We, we thought it would be good. We called them like a series of theatrical films. And, and, and we wanted to write about, you know, six six different stories. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, characters would cross over uh, into some of the stories, but you know, not not overly plotty or not in the way that we wants to make it literally connect. So then, I collaborated with a um, very experienced screenwriter called Eugene O'Brien, who, as you know, screenwriters have that kind of mathematical brain. You know, people uh, to write a screenplay, you really have to understand structure and understand like um, it's one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? To write like six individual screenplays and then and there'd be some sort of internet interconnection or some sort of like thematic sense so we decided yes we, we would actually go and make all six we made we made three quite spaced out or sorry four quite spaced out and then we made three together so they're made over a period of like uh, is 12 months and uh it's interesting like the differences between one and six in terms of how our kind of I guess our tennis ability or familiarity with the subject kind of evolves and changes. So in the one that was shown, uh, it's called Mespel in the Dark, which is the title uh, episode of the series. 
that's being shown standalone in film festivals and, and that now other ones are being shown There's one called font episode three and that's going to be shown in a film festival and then they've also uh, mostly it's being messed more dark the title one that's being shown like in philadelphia and the hollywood shorts uh festival so like we're hoping to maybe show more of them individually and then our long-term plan is if we have the time and the resources we'd love to have a go at trying to if we took all six and we tried to turn them into like a 40-minute version either a long short or a short feature that would be a very interesting exercise to see if we could sort of like you know uh make something different out of the six but if we have the time now we might try and we, we might try and do that it just depends on uh, availability and editing time um and getting the resources to do it i know you mentioned like you kind of use different actors in each episode but i'm curious if you kind of kept the same crew when it came to each short film to keep maybe the look or tone the same to a certain degree if it's kind of conceptualized as a series that's exactly it. So we've had the same DOP who's Russ Kavanagh, and then they've been supplemented by assistant DOP. So we've had different people come and go. Uh, we've had the same composer and overall sound mixer, uh, Jim Edie, and then we've had uh, we've had the same. Uh, luckily, I have a childhood friend who actually is um, a well-known editor. Uh, she's like a member of the Academy, and she's uh, done big feature films. And so she was the overall consulting editor. So she was able to kind of keep us on track. Her notes are vicious, you know. She sends me these like Excel sheet vicious <laughs> notes about the mistakes that I'm making and the mis- and I like, you know, so it was really good to have that. Um, her name is Naomi Garrity, to have her on board to sort of make sure that we stayed on track. So it was really good to have that outside voice. And, and you know, as I said, she's kind of used to doing like big stressy featured film projects. So for this was a small thing for her, but also it was really good to have that um, mentorship, but also this really, really blunt notes about how that, you know, um, that that wasn't going to work because of why, why, and why, and if you do this, and, you know, so that was really interesting. So, yeah, we kept the same crew. It developed into a nice a nice atmosphere. You know, when you start, when you start with the same people, you got a second hand. It's, you don't have to discuss everything. Everyone's kind of, kind of moves into place. It has a certain choreography and rhythm to it. So yeah, that was really helpful having the same team. And then we have lots of different actors. Most trim were people that I kind of know and sort of obviously banked to do the show. And uh, they were they were all amazing. Yeah, they were all really cool to work with. So on your website about the film, it mentions an alternate version of the episode one as a 360 experience. Can you tell us more about that and if it was ever made that way? Sure, yeah. So we also have an idea that... Um, uh, what's to, we, we kind of had this concept of experimenting with 360 because we'd never seen, we looked at a lot of 360 stuff, right? So 360 is sort of an area where everyone kind of goes, what's 360? So this is filmed stereoscopic. And so we were able to get like, we bought an 8K kind of Insta camera, which is now a couple of years old. And um, basically um, we decided to film episode one uh, as a 360 film so we've never seen a, like a long narrative 360 you normally see you tend to see them like two or three minutes long with a lot of augmented reality and another a lot of more experimental editing techniques so this is like a narrative 360 film that's about i think it might be even be 20 minutes long but essentially uh let me tell you it was an absolute murder to edit so we basically <laughs> we, we actually did all that ourselves you're starting off with a file of like 90 gigabytes and the poor old computer's like whirring away overnight trying to render small bits. You've got to stitch everything together by hand. And so essentially what you have is in the 360 version of episode one, which is called Dinner for One, on Vimeo and YouTube. Although 
with the technology at the time uh, didn't allow you to broadcast live on 360. You can sort of like uh, program it, but also like 360 works quite well um, on some platforms, but you know, it, it was slightly exaggerated in the platforms as to like, you know, how, how well this would function. So we did actually release, um, we, we released the 360 and then you can sort of scroll around it on your phone or, or on the computer and you can see around the room. So yes. It was actually something that we kind of released as a kind of um, 360 film. And it's kind of fascinating to watch. It has a different time than the others. You know, you don't edit it as tightly because you're going to, it's longer. You allow people to sort of like, if there's a, if there's a character there, like in the shower, you know, you, you get to go around and maybe read, read his books, turn around, have a look at the front door, come back to the action. So it sort of makes the viewer into a kind of a voyeur editor creator as well so it has a whole different feel to it so yeah we're hoping that maybe uh, next year importantly might show the 360 but also it would be a really cool thing to show if you could like show it on four screens at a data you know sit in the middle and then it'd be quite interesting to watch it that way but yeah the 360 it was like with the actual technical um side of editing that was like it was it was a sort of a, a extremely difficult thing after having done the 360 suddenly like 2D editing seemed really straightforward to give you an example. <laughs> and that sounds ridiculous. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> is is the 360 experience available for people to interact with somewhere? Um, yeah. So you can, I mean, not so much interact, but you can, you know, if people, if people, if people want, if people wanted to, eventually we're going to put it on a website. If people, if people wanted to see it, um, I can send them a link and it's, you know, it's, it's held, it's held at the moment on our Vimeo site. So, you know, you can, you can definitely watch it and move around. So we just started to sort of send it to a few film festivals that were in, interested in 360. And then eventually, hopefully, maybe in some way we can get it on some kind of platform, uh, which is hard to do, as you know. Um, there's so much content now being generated. So we're hoping that people can, can have a chance to view it again. And so, yeah, it's, it's available there. And you just kind of scroll from one to right. But if you want, I can email it to you if you're interested. I have a, I have a kind of a, a booklet with, all six uh, films, there's links to all six films on the 360. So if you ever wanted to have a look at it, I can just send it to you. Oh, I'd love to see it. I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah. Cool. So, so um, you know, as someone who's involved in theater and someone who's also involved in film, um, obviously two different mediums, um, how do you approach a theater versus, uh, as a director, I mean, versus how do you approach film? It's very interesting. Um, um, qu quite differently, and there's such different environments. You know, it's really hard to say um, because you make kind of experimental performance. Our way of approaching theater is quite different. In that, you know, first of all, every project we do, we try to do something quite different. We don't just try to repeat the aesthetic or the lessons from before. We're always interested in like innovation, moving the art form forward. And so, because I'm so comfortable working in theater, you know, I do my normal preparation, which could be two years or a year and a half, and you know, so now you gather materials. For, for a theater performance and then we just we don't necessarily do the script we, we write a performance text or we write down a series of actions we'd like to explore or we write down so and then we'll rehearse like over maybe two blocks maybe like two or three weeks and I'll come back to it then and three months later and just five or six blocks so it's kind of a period where eight to nine weeks or six to eight weeks that the you know, whoever's working on the show is in the ring together every day for five days sometimes six days a week so you have all this concentrated time to sort of hang out and try out ideas and it's very productive we make a lot of work and then we only show about like 12 percent to 50 percent of what we make 
So in that environment, I'm very comfortable to take the risk and not have a finished piece before I go into rehearsals. And then, and then we also work co-creatively now. So we don't worry about a hierarchy about people have different skills, but we go ahead and say, look, let's, let's make this piece, you know? So in film, obviously, uh, you need a script. So it's completely different. So there, you know, it's, it's a completely different process whereby, you know, you want to have your script ready well in advance so that you can analyze it so that you can study it a million times so that you can set up, you know, a shot list so that the actor knows what they're doing so that like, they're able to, you know, to, to think about what their performance is. We did in the case of Mespel, um, in the dark films, we did some rehearsing, which doesn't always happen for short films. And it was interesting as we were doing them, uh, some of the younger, the younger assistant DOP said, wow, I've never seen anyone like direct actors in a short film before. So that was funny. Uh, I mean, it's like talking, again, we like to have time to talk to them about their performance and their character. So I guess they're under such tight pressure to shoot these things in like two to four days. So I guess I approached, I did, I did approach film, you know, because I had to learn more about what, how films are made. And I did approach them in a kind of way that I, I think like there are certain rules in filmmaking that just work. So it's not like, it's not my job to kind of break those rules. But what I found about filmmaking is that on the day of the filming, I had more time off than I would if I was working at a theater performance where everyone's looking at each other all the time. But obviously in a film performance, you've got to set up the shots. I ended up metaphorically like sitting more time on a white couch thinking. So I felt a bit more like I quite liked the atmosphere of that because you didn't have to solve all the problems immediately. You could do something, you could sit down and you could ponder, you could go forward. So I quite liked the difference. And I quite, I quite like, I like both. But I also liked I liked the time of filmmaking, whereby as if you're directing the film, you also other people have you know everyone else loves their jobs in films as you know. So it's kind of nice sometimes that you get to sit down and like you know um, uh, ponder on the day or think on the day. Whereas you're doing theater, the live element, you're just there's always people sort of like there's always those sets of eyes looking at people and trying to make things um, happen all the time. And that energy is quite different. So I'd say they're, they're the differences I, I think at the moment, you know, I'm curious. I want to, I want to circle back to something um, because I'm, I'm fascinated by this. You said in the, in the theater um, you're very experimental and you know, you don't necessarily write a full script, but you're just trying to get the show up on its feet by experimenting and, and 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 uh, uh, improv and and that kind of thing is is what I understand. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? So what you know? Yeah. So in the theater, like it's improvisation is a funny word. As many people have said, uh, like you know, we we improvisation might be one of like hundred tools that we use. It, the, to the general public, sometimes improvisation equals kind of stand up comedy or are specifically a kind of thing you have to do to get somewhere that you don't know where you're going to get. So like. Think about it like this. So somebody said once, like in real life, they improvise all the time. You know, we're crossing the road, we decide to go right or left, there's sounds. So the human being is really used to improvising. So when it comes to the, the theater show, what we do, what, what I do is I I gather materials, like I gather materials which are, they could be audio, they could be notebooks full of, um, full of, full of um, sentences or ideas, concepts. Sometimes in the case of the show that I'm doing now called History Play, I've interviewed 10 world famous historians um, and asked them questions about history. What is history? And I asked them more personal questions about like what keeps them up at night and like what do they most worry about? 
and just in terms of like how history has changed. We talk about archiving. So, but that may only be like certain percentage of percentage of the show. So it's almost like I approach um, the subject and theme equally, or if you like, the form of the content equally. And in this case, we've decided that our show is called History Play, not The History Play. And actually, it's like trying to make a piece about a theme rather than a subject. So we're trying to give this sense of like, almost a kind of philosophical sense of like, like how can anyone even comprehend history? History is time. We all know history is what happened, but at the same time, all historians tell you that it's really too complicated to explain to people quickly, you know, do you have two hours? And we end up in this world where history trying to be explained through a soundbite or a real sentence. And history certainly can't be done on Twitter. So approaching that show, we gather tons of materials. We interview people, we think about it, we talk about it. And then when we get to rehearsal, we try and find one or two things to hang the show on. And then we start distilling what we mean by history into moments of performance, being perhaps into images, into one or two scenes. So we kind of approach it like, um, you know, like you would if you're a painter, form and line and color. And you try to look at like an abstract painting, like how do you begin to paint an abstract painting? Usually begin with a lot of thinking, with a lot of emotion, with a lot of feeling. And then you also try to sort of like, you do some research, but research is hit and miss. I mean, I can't research history because the subject's too big. Uh, you panic by a few books, maybe you don't get through them. But essentially, I, I've just been trying to hone in on that as a theme. But, but how can we represent history on stage? Because it used to be a genre or is a genre in theater. We think of Shakespeare, Schiller, or more contemporary playwrights who are being commissioned to write history, or the Irish playwright Brian Fields writing a play called Making History. So they tend to take one subject and it's approached in a naturalistic way. But this way, we want, we want to approach history in a kind of visceral, strange, dreamlike way. So I guess it's just you put yourself in touch with the subject, and then you go into a room, you collaborate with people. Choosing the collaborator is quite important. And then you, you make the work. So it's like you work the material really hard, and then you see what comes out. So a lot of the time, you know, you hear actors who kind of originated in theater and then transitioned to film, but you, you are the first person or the first guest on the show that's kind of made that transition as a behind the camera person, as a director. And I'm curious, what about uh, aspects of theater production do you miss the most when making films? And how do you maybe find ways to incorporate those elements into your film projects? You know, for example, maybe you do a lot of rehearsing for film, which maybe is a little, mo little bit more uncommon for film productions. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, that's what everyone says. You, you look at yourself and go like, what, 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 what extra skills do I have? Or perhaps what additional experience or like, what, what could I bring uh, to filmmaking? Maybe that somebody who didn't like, you know, do those million hours that I've done in the rehearsal rooms. And I guess that's one thing um, I am comfortable. I think I'm comfortable communicating with actors, but it may not necessarily be the right communication. So you've got to be very careful there. Um, so yes, definitely. I, I, I like to, I like to rehearse with the actors and I, that makes, that makes me more comfortable, but I also find that mostly, except for some actors who say, I don't want to rehearse and that's fair enough. Their, their, their method is not to rehearse because they're afraid if the cameras aren't on them, they're going to miss the performance. So yes, some people don't want to do, but by, by and large, um, the majority of actors I've worked with on these films, you know, have enjoyed, um, the possibility of rehearsing. So yeah, that's the first thing. I guess my comfortableness with actors and um, 
in the shows that I'm making in the theater, they're always a risk. And, you know, like a lot of actors won't like working with me because they go like, what character am I playing? I say, I don't know yet. And like, where's the finished script? The script isn't finished. It's an ongoing process. So they, they don't make, that, that might, might, may not be for them because they feel they feel vulnerable and they don't, they don't like they don't like the fact they don't know what part they're playing and their agent doesn't know what part they're playing, you know? So... <laughs> So yeah, so you have to also uh, take it, take that into consideration. But essentially, yeah, what what you're bringing is a kind of way of making a room comfortable. So a lot of my job when I'm trying to work with people in that collaborative way is I'm trying to make a good atmosphere. So that's also the same thing I think with filmmaking. You're trying to make the room interesting. You're trying to make uh, hear everyone's voices. You're you're trying to um, make the room good fun. There's an atmosphere of creativity. You're trying to make sure that even though you've got a shot list for a film, the same way as a theater show, maybe you've got like these ideas for scenes, but you've got room to be as creative as you can. So it's nice to leave room for things you haven't thought of. And that's what's really great. If the script is a guide uh, in filming, in fit in filming, then you hope that you can go beyond that guide and actually then start to really kind of get into something that perhaps no one possibly could have foreseen or thought of in advance so because just a combination of like 10 12 great people it's going to you're, you're going to hit upon something that's kind of um you know unusual or something you haven't thought of it doesn't mean that you're always putting your hand up and doing by committee it is kind of a nuance to it like about like you know you feel the room like should we do more or is it done or you know should we go beyond the script or should we stick to the script so it's very interesting when that comes down to it, it doesn't mean that like suddenly you allow actors to sort of like improvise on quite on quite a well-written film script you want there to be a balance between you know input creativity and actually like you know the the, the, the screen, screenwriters probably spent a long time working this out and the actor may not be aware of the of, of the consequences of changing that one line or changing that emotion but yeah i think it's all like uh in terms of that it's it, it if theater is so different than film you know the artificiality of it the fact that you're reconstructing it later but certainly i think um yeah, uh, my familiar act, my one of the, my strengths would be my comfortableness with with actors, I guess. You know. Well, you know, Gavin, um, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, you've actually inspired me to think about being more experimental in in the film work that I do because I'm fascinated uh, about that that idea you had on how you you know get a, a play up on its feet and improv and and do interesting things and find tools to work your way in. That's really interesting to me. Um, but, you know, it's been great having you on the show. It's been a wonderful conversation. And, uh, yeah, keep us up to date with what you're working on. And please send us the links. I'd love to see uh, uh, more of the shorts. Um, and, you know, if your plays ever, you know, come to the States or at least my neck of the woods, I'd love to see those as well. Sure. Uh, where, where are you based? I'm in Austin, Texas. Okay, great. Yeah, we have a meet Austin, Texas. We have, we have a show on in the Lincoln Center in New York in the first two weeks of January. Um, so yeah, it's a before, it's a book club performance piece. It's kind of interesting, but that's the closest, uh, not that close to Texas. So maybe if you're in New York in January. Well, for, for, uh, listeners who are in that area and want to, uh, see the show, um, tell them how to find you. Oh yeah. So it's basically, uh, the show is called the first bad man. It'll be on the Lynn center. Uh, it'll be on between the 5th and the, and the 16th of January. So if you, at some point it'll be online. I guess the information, I guess no later than October, you could just, uh, if you go on the Lincoln Center website and look for Pan Pan, that's the name of the company, P-A-N-P-A-N, then you should be able to find the information on it. Awesome. Well, uh, break a leg on that show and uh, uh, keep us posted on that and all the other things you're up to. Great. Thank you. 
All right. You take care, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Melody Lopez. Our theme music was composed by the jocular Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes. 